0: The best motion picture of the year. (laughs) It all comes down to these five wonderful films. The nominees are... (laughs) Brokeback Mountain, Diana Osana, and James Seamus, producers. (laughs) Capote, Caroline Barron, William Vince, and Michael O'Hoven producers. Crash, Paul Haggis, Kathy Schulman, of course, producers. Good night and good luck. Brad Haslov, producer. Munich Kathleen Kennedy, Steven Spielberg, Barry Mendel, producers. And the Oscar goes to... Hello there and
1: welcome back to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the only podcast that rights the wrongs, celebrates the slighted. Wait, wait, wait,
2: wait. You and I talked about this. We're not the only podcast that takes on the Academy. There are other podcasts out there kind of doing what we do. While it's very subjective, like they're very subjective, very, very subjective, and we're more of the scholarly approach. But I thought we were changing your intro to say that we're the best. You know what? When you're right, you're right, and you're right take
1: two. Hello and welcome back to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the best, most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. Lee's the best, and I'm an esteemed man named Spro. (laughs) And our destiny is to rewrite Oscar history one gold man at a time. Today, we're beginning our third glorious season of Taking on the Academy. And boy, howdy do we have a lineup starting today with our discussion on one of the most egregious best picture winners of all
2: time. But before we get to all that, we're joined today by a good friend, the owner and proprietor of Odd Dog Coffee and the very unofficial sponsor of Take on the Academy,
3: Michael Hancock. Welcome to the show, Mike. Well, hi there. It's good to be here. It's currently one of the most beautiful days of the year here in Cleveland. It's 75 degrees and there's not a cloud in the sky, and I cannot think of a single thing I would rather do than sit in my bedroom and talk to you dorks about 17-year-old movies. (laughs) Let me also say... I am reading from a script that I wrote myself over the past two hours. It's yet another two-hour session. I've dedicated to this monumental favor you both have asked of me, and I could not be more uncomfortable reading my own lines. For those listeners, yes, I've written my own lines. If I sound like I'm reading, it's because I am. I'm sorry. I'm a business person, not an actor. I don't read lines. I read numbers. I don't watch movies. I watch my one-year-old. Lee, you will pay for this. It wasn't my idea. doesn't
1: matter. So, Mike, we've known each other for over two decades now. Not as long as I've known Spro, but biggest difference between you and Spro is you're not a movie guy. So what the fuck are you doing here?
3: I have absolutely no clue, man. Have you ever watched the Academy Awards? Are you talking about the Hollywood circle jerk that happens every year? Yes, I watch it. Spro, don't you do some sort of Oscar bingo every year? I do. (laughs) Does the winner have to give an outrageously over-the-top speech that somehow never concludes in the allotted time?
2: No. The winner of my Academy Awards pool, which is going on 15 years now, they get like 100 bucks. All right, Mike. Over the course of our friendship, I remember
1: twice that you saw a movie before me and recommended it to me training day and the last samurai i don't suppose there's another one that we could add to that list you know maybe something that you've seen in the last couple of years that's
3: really stuck with you dude after watching 10 movies in the last two weeks that's likely 20 hours of research required to help you guys with this hobby (laughs) i honestly cannot remember a single movie i've watched prior to brokeback (laughs) mountain last week (laughs) so no if you want to know what i'm watching put on coco melon or miss Rachel. I don't even know what those are. Yeah, I don't understand either
1: of those references. You have been very vocal about how much of a martyr you've been in t- <laughs> t- taking this on. And and can I just say, before we move forward, it was not my idea to have you on this show. After we had our Oscar wrap-up episode with our friend MC, Spro suggested that we have another person sort of of the same ilk
3: that doesn't give a flying shit about the Oscars. First of all, I like Spro better than you. Yeah. <laughs> Second of all, you are the one that communicated this project to me. And what I heard was, hey, you want to join my podcast and talk about movies? I said, yeah, sure. So what do I get? I get a Google Doc with 22 fucking movies, no context in a script. Mm -hmm. I get that Google Doc and I'm like, this motherfucker wants me to watch 22 movies. And mind you, it was a month and a half ago. I watched maybe, I watched maybe- Excuse me? Yes? It was way longer than
1: a month and a half ago. Good, fuck you.
2: But I'm excited to have you on, Mike. So our audience, as it is, there's a lot that come from LA. Every time that we have a guest on internationally, we get a lot from their country. But what we're finding out more and more is as we take on the Academy, we're really only getting the people that watch the Academy Awards to view it. The opinion of the mass public is largely being ignored here. So we brought on MC last year, and he was like, I don't even know what the fuck a film is. I watch movies. And then when I was like... We should really get Hancock on. Lee was like, he doesn't really watch movies. And I was like, perfect. Then we could see like what his opinion is on these movies that everybody's saying are the greatest. Your opinion is going to matter a whole hell of a lot more to a lot more people than ours is. Ours is a very niche community. I don't like Spro saying that
1: out loud, but it's... (laughs) So Mike, fair you've been kind enough to indulge our passion for cinema. It's only fair, I think, if we dedicate a little bit of time to your love affair with coffee. So I wonder if you'd give us a brief rundown of how you got into the
3: coffee business. I usually tell people that I had been having a bad couple of weeks at work. And I've always been interested in roasting coffee at home. Over the course of 15, 20 years, had occasionally come up with the idea of roasting beans to sell them. And I think maybe that passion had maybe intersected with the bad weeks of work that I was having. And so one day I just decided to start roasting coffee on a regular basis and trying to sell it to my friends and family. And then things kind of ramped up from there. So bought a commercial roaster, started working on logos and packaging, and built myself a website and then just started roasting commercially from there it's been about six or seven years and now i'm the proud owner of a short school bus that's painted mint green and we serve a full espresso bar at our neighborhood park i have never had odd
1: dog coffee your company being odd dog coffee i've never had it fresh made by you but i have (laughs) ordered it many many times And I want to know what makes a cup of coffee perfect? Because there are some days where I make a pot and I take that first sip and I'm like, damn. And then there are other days when I take it and I'm like, damn it. So what are the X factors?
3: First thing to say is I personally know that you're grinding your beans too fine. Despite my constant badgering. I mean, you're turning it into fucking flour and you do it because you want to stretch that coffee yes. it's stupid yes. and I'm it's a coffee very, professional. very, very strong. And I told <laughs> you that it's wrong. It's probably super astringent. What is it supposed to be? Could, like what's the consistency supposed to be? It depends on the method of brewing. If you're using an espresso machine, then you grind it pretty fine. Lee is using a drip machine and that has to go a little bit coarser, but he's grinding it like he's using an espresso machine it clogs up his filters. It makes it super bitter. And it's just, it's the wrong thing. I've told him. The idea of perfection is in the coffee industry, somewhat overdone. When you kind of enter yourself into the industry as like a coffee person, you would get exposed to these underground, mostly bros, spending an insane amount of time in search of perfection. And it's, you know, in pursuit of an optimal extraction on their coffee or some sort of brewing method. There's a guy, he's an astrophysicist that wrote an entire book on just filter coffee. One of his well-known methods involves using an AeroPress which is one of those little plungers. I don't know if you guys have seen those. And in his recipe, he, you know, it's all sorts of different steps. But one of the things that I just think is crazy is he recommends letting the AeroPress set for 10 minutes. So you're steeping that coffee for 10 minutes, which he has all sorts of evidence that this is a very superior way of brewing the coffee for this reason, that reason, and that reason. And he's got all the data points. He's wrote an entire book on his methods. And I'm sure he's deserving of all of the... The adoration that he gets from the industry. But I think that's a pursuit of futility. You end up adding a lot of unnecessary steps to take a very great cup of coffee to a perfect cup of coffee. And really the common person, and I guess this is probably similar to what you said, Spro, earlier about movies is people just don't give a shit. The common person cannot tell the difference between a perfect cup of coffee and a very good cup of coffee. So me. to answer what I think you're asking me, here are a couple of tips eliminate the beans exposure to oxygen so keep it in some sort of degassing bag or vessel that removes oxygen from the container consume it within four to six weeks don't drink the sale coffee buy only whole bean use a burr grinder use filtered water and also most people don't realize this but coffee tends to peak in flavor about seven to ten days after it's been roasted so if someone gives you coffee and says it was roasted yesterday it's likely not fully developed by that point
2: god damn that's some expert shit right there yeah
1: mike knows his shit All right, Spro, you know your shit too, so can I have an Oscar fun
2: fact, please? For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog.
1: Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high quality roast profile to create a solid bean. And when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink
2: every day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, rishi shroom and altheanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at
1: home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but our dog. First one of
2: season three. What? What? Everybody's a winner at the Oscars. Well, not everyone, but if we're talking about swag bags, if you're a nominee for Best Director or any of the four acting categories, you get a swag bag made for you by a company called Distinctive Assets. Last year's nominees each got a bag worth over $138,000. Did Will Smith keep his? Who knows, but what was in the bag, we do know. See, ever since 1989, Distinctive Assets bags have been famous or infamous, depending on how you view them. And I must say, they are unrelated to the account- Academy. The Academy does not give this stuff out. The uber rich like Smith and Jessica Chastain and Nicole Kidman they received for doing their job millions of dollars and because they did their job so well and their production companies campaigned beautifully these actors and directors each got a $50,000 vacation to the Turin Castle in Scotland which has 10 bedrooms by the way. They also got a $15,000 spa retreat for two. There's also swanky food like cookies, brownies there's fancy candles, skincare products, the first ever flavor wrapped popcorn kernels. I don't even know that is vouchers for personal training life coaches therapy stuffed animals baby dolls medical procedures cannabis chocolates there's a gadget that helps strengthen your pelvic floor an nft of chadwick boseman's head a 12-night vacation in tanzania a blackberry a 10-year supply of oxygenated makeup condoms of course they're probably fancy condoms a one-ounce bottle of perel hand sanitizer encrusted in gold and jewels mace Savarsky bedazzled e-cigs, a four-night stay at a luxury hotel in Switzerland, laser eye surgery, a $275 roll of Swiss toilet paper, a $20,000 voucher for an astrologist to give you a personal reading, and there was something called a vampire breast lift. Any company that has something in these bags for these rich folk also has to pay about $5,000 to distinctive assets to be included in the quote-unquote bag. There's over 50 things in these bags. They're like totes, mini suitcases. Some reports say they are trunks now. They started as little bags back in 1989, but not no more. Some years, the cost of the swag has gone up to $200,000, with service items being the most expensive thing in them. One year, there was a $25,000 home renovation gift certificate. Obviously, I'm judging because I'm jealous, but I'm also, I don't know. There's like 20 actors, right? And five directors, and each of them is attending the Oscars because it's the highest freaking honor of their profession, right? We're spending upwards of $5 million to give them free stuff. It's just free stuff that they don't really need and couldn't probably care less about as far as their night goes. And this company, Distinctive Assets, is making money off these little companies who just want to get noticed. So they are in on the rack. And then there's Hollywood in general, so liberal, so politically conscious, but to be fair, celebrities can refuse these swag cases, these swunk trunks. And despite Edward Norton finding them shameful and Ricky Gervais pointing out that they're worth more than most people's annual salaries, there's only been reports of one Hollywood celebrity refusing them, and that would be Miss Sandra Oh. In 2016, the Academy filed suit against distinctive assets claiming the latter's gift bags constitute trademark infringement and damage to the Academy's reputation. The bags that year includes a few items the Academy deemed unsavory, such as marijuana vape pens, sex toys and the infamous vampire breast lift, which (laughs) I'm going to have to look into. But the Academy apparently didn't want to be linked with this in the media. As Brian Bishop at Vox sister site, The Verge, pointed out, the Academy's pushback against distinctive assets, elaborate gift bags, quote, wasn't the Academy taking a principled stand. It was the Academy striking back because it didn't like the products it was being associated with. In other words, the core issue that hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of goods are being given to people who are already very rich has nothing to do with the Academy's ire. It was simply the look and feel. So in April 2016, LA Business News reported that the Academy and Distinctive Assets had reached a settlement in the suit, agreeing among other restrictions that they would not use the Academy's trademark and would provide a disclaimer that disavows any affiliation between the two organizations. And as we get into season three here on Spro and Lead Take on the Academy, we'll be deep diving into one actress's illustrious run and think of how much free shit (laughs) that she has gotten because of it. Mike, have you ever gotten a swag bag? No, <laughs> I have not received
1: a swag bag. Spro, so, I got to say as Oscar Fun Facts go, well done. All right, let's get into why and we're here. Oscar goes to
0: crash. <laughs>
1: So on May 6th, 2005, a film called Crash was released in the United States. It had a magnificent cast. It told a massive story made up of myriad interlocking tales and it sought to magnify the racial tensions that have so long plagued our country. Crash built a gradual audience, mostly in America and Europe. It popped up on 198 top 10 lists, holding the top spot on 32 of them. And the late Roger Ebert called it wonderful for telling textured human stories and he even hinted at the notion that seeing this film just might make you a better person. In March of 2006, Crash won the Oscar for Best Picture of the Year as well as Best Film Editing and Best Original Screenplay. At the end of its theatrical run, it had made a little over 15 times its 6.5 million dollar budget.
4: <laughs> <Get up there. laughs> start. Thank you. Oh my god. Oh, thank you so so much. What an amazing night. Thank you to all of the members of the Academy for embracing... by name, every Can single I, one. Yeah. Exactly. For embracing our film about love and about tolerance, about truth. Thank you to the people all around the world who have been touched by this message. And we are humbled by the other nominees in this category. You have made this year. One of the most most breathtaking and stunning maverick years in American cinema, thank you. We'd like to thank Lionsgate, boy, did you do a job. John Feldheimer and everyone in every office of that building, and we would not be here today if it were not for Tom Ortenberg and for Sarah Greenberg. Thank you. Thank you also to our financiers, Andy Reimer, Jan Korbelin, Marina Grasic, Bob Yari. To our producers, our partners, Mark Harris, and Bob Yari, and Don Cheadle, and Bobby Moresco. Thank you. Don Cheadle, our partner, we wish you could be here with us tonight. Thank you, everybody. Thank you to my husband, to my wife, and to all of our families.
1: After naming Crash as one of the best films of the year, the American Film Institute said the following, Crash is a cinematic fantasia on the duality of man, exploring with astonishing candor how we're divided and tormented by race. There is a sublime poetry to the film that emerges from the union of words and images using the automobile as a metaphor for how we both distance and touch each other sometimes violently. The film is distinguished by its extraordinary writing and an acting ensemble that fires on all pistons. So what the fuck is our problem that we can't just enjoy a goddamn car metaphor?
2: I like how one of the trivia pieces on this is Paul Haggis and Bobby Moresco wrote the first draft of Crash in two weeks. Because one, this feels like it. And two, in the industry, the first draft is what everybody calls the shit draft it's a piece of shit. It should be written in two weeks. Nobody's going to see it. Nobody should give a shit about it. You stroke out the first one as fast as possible so you could get to the rewrites and shaping. The Guardian wrote, had it not won the Oscar, it probably would have shuffled off quietly to the archives. So here's 16-year hindsight from Saltota. It won the Oscar and it did shuffle off quietly to the archives. If I say crashed, any of my friends, they either think I'm talking about the 96 film with James Spader and Holly Hunter, which is a much better watch, or the song that plays on the soundtrack of Dumb and Dumber.
1: I think of the Dade Matthews Band album that did not leave my stereo from 1996 to 1998.
2: Okay, perhaps I'm the only one who thinks about the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. Know, regardless, looking at the 21st century, let's run down the list of films that the layperson, a.k.a. Mike, would probably be surprised one Best Picture or even existed. Crash, obviously, Million Dollar Baby, The Artist, The Shape of Water, Green
3: Book, Hancock. What out of those have you seen? Let me see. I've seen Crash. The artist is with uh, What's-His-Face. It's about the Holocaust, right? No. No. Okay. Spot on. No, that's the pianist. Uh, So, no, I've never seen the artist. Shape of Water. I saw Shape of Water. That's it.
2: So, all of these are things that the layperson probably have already forgotten about. Crash included.
3: And probably last year with CODA. Coda too, huh? Yeah, you're
2: probably right. In 2015, a Hollywood Reporter poll of hundreds of Academy members showed that the 2005 Best Picture Trophy would have gone to that year's ostensibly more progressive choice, Ang Lee's gay cowboy romance Brokeback Mountain. Paul Haggis himself conceded that his directorial debut shouldn't have won. Quote, was it the best film of the year? I don't think so. There were great films that year. Good Night and Good Luck, Capote, Ang Lee's Brokeback Mountain, and Steven Spielberg's Munich. I mean, please, what a year!" Year, end quote. I often say on this show that race is the second most complicated conversation in this country. What does the film Crash say differently than every other film about race? That we're all racist? That people become post-racial when they get to satisfy a hero complex? Like, what is this movie even saying? It's saying that
1: racism, tribalism, ethnocentrism, these are unavoidable parts of being a human being. But if you're lucky, you'll get to experience some coincidences, which will save your life and deepen your appreciation of your fellow men.
2: That, really that's what this film is saying I don't care
1: <laughs> this movie is a bunch of horse shit but hooray for Brendan Fraser
0: <laughs> it's the sense of touch Any real city you, you walk you know you brush past people people bump into you in LA nobody touches you we're always behind this metal and glass
5: how far can bullets go
0: you thinking about that bullet that came
5: through your window? What's wrong? You alright?
4: I am angry all the time, and I don't know why.
5: Put your hands on top of your head, man. Will you just do what he says?
0: Now, do you have any guns or knives or anything I might get stuck with? It's your brother's file. Kids going away for life for stealing a car. All I need to do to make this disappear is to frame a potentially innocent man. You find your brother. Oh. Tell him to go home.
4: Why do you keep everybody a certain distance, huh? What you start to feel something in panic? What I need is a husband who
5: will not just stand there. What
0: did you want me to do? Get us both shot. Get out of the
5: car. Me. I just had a gun pointed in my face. And it was my fault because I knew it was gonna happen.
0: Hands in plain sight, step out of the vehicle.
5: Honey, stay inside, man. Don't walk up on me. I know this man. Get back.
0: You think you know who you are? You have no idea.
3: You had a conversation with God, huh? What did God say? I'm trying to help you. I didn't ask for your help, did I?
5: I'll
0: protect you. It's the sense of touch. I think we miss that touch so much that we crash into each other just so we can feel something. <laughs> something else, money? People, man.
2: People. Uh, Mike, as a business owner, what's your thoughts on racism? Wade, strike that. Let me make the question more damning. What's your thoughts on races other than
3: your own? You like them? Why or why not? You know, guys, I'm not going to fall for the scotch of journalism. The only thing that I truly had to say about this movie is that it was just a race-baiting tragedy porn. The scenes are just an endless supply of the worst of people, and it just comes off as disingenuous. The only thing that really kind of got to me were the scenes between the locksmith and his daughter. Those were nice, but everything else, it was just bullshit to me.
1: If you were going to use a metaphor to describe your experience watching this film... What would you say? You know, that's a good question, Lee.
3: <laughs> I'd say it's like kind of like watching a car crash. <laughs> but not in a romantic way? No, no, oh. none whatsoever.
2: All right. It is. It seems like the dialogue in the scenes, they just immediately go toward like the cliche. Yeah. Well, this is
1: an example of one of those topics that someone tried to tackle in two hours, and they did not have the talent to do so. So let's talk about everyone else that was nominated for Best Picture that year. And the first of those nominees is Brokeback Mountain. And if I can begin, I remember (laughs) 17 years ago, my friends were recommending it. The film press was gushing and it felt poised to take home a whole lot of Oscar gold. Up until that point, nothing like Brokeback Mountain had ever broken mainstream. A critically lauded love story between two burgeoning male A-listers. I mean, it was a film event. It was a zeitgeist moment for cinema, and I had to be a part of it. Anyway, I watched it. I liked it. I didn't love it and I filed it away. But over the subsequent 17 years, Brokeback Mountain has never really left the conversation. It's only grown in estimation. It's become admired and beloved, even canonized by film culture. So when you suggested this episode, bro, it felt right. And revisiting Brokeback Mountain was such a Mm. great idea. What a wonderful, (laughs) painful, beautiful, and inspiring film.
2: Why are you laughing? Mm because who suggested this? I didn't suggest this episode. You definitely did. If we're going to be honest here, everybody in the world suggested this episode. This is like one of the most egregious Oscars ever handed yeah, out. This but, was your now, but now that we're diving in, I understand why people thought the Crash win was so divisive, but as another thing, I think people don't realize that emotional decisions aren't always right. One thing we can conclude here before we reveal our winner, Brokeback Mountain is a much better cinematic offering than Crash.
0: If you're looking for work, I suggest you get in here pronto. Well, since we're going to be working
5: together, I reckon it's time we start drinking together. buddies you
0: know it could be like this just like this always this thing grabs hold of us in the wrong place we're dead you sure found a way to make the town pass up there
4: you don't go up there to fish you don't know nothing about
0: it
5: I have no idea how bad it gets. If you can't fix it, you got a standard. I wish I knew how to quit you.
1: So are we accusing the 2006 Academy voting body of being homophobic?
2: Cowardly, both. You know, I won't say homophobic because I don't understand the love of Brokeback. Now, when Crash won the Oscar, people said the Academy was homophobic because there's this critically lauded movie about two men who fall in love on the range. But I almost think the backlash against Crash for Brokeback Mountain is homo enthusiasm. I understand it's two A-list actors in a homosexual relationship, but it's a very aggressive relationship. (laughs) Jake Gyllenhaal's character's first sex scene is almost Last Tango and Parasy. People would say, you just can't handle a love scene between two
3: men. And no, that felt rapey. And I don't like rapey. I hadn't considered that last part, but I think the movie softened from that point on. Disagree with both of you. I think it was 100% a
1: conscious decision because of the intense sexual repression of the Ennis character. I agree with you that it's hard to watch, but I think it tracks, especially when you consider that Ennis is a violent dude.
2: It never convinces me that Ennis and Twist are in love, but rather two dudes who had sex one night and now are the only two dudes who know the other dude likes dudes so they're kind of like two dudes stuck with each other. When the infamous line is said, quote, I wish I could quit you. To me, it means I wish I could not be a homosexual. To me, this isn't a love story. But does that even matter? The decider wrote, basically, Brokeback Mountain is not for me. It's a movie about gay people delivered through the lens of straight people and the straight gaze here is very thick, end quote. Conservatives railed against it for being a part of the quote, unquote, gay agenda, which what the fuck is even the gay agenda? People are afraid that gay is catching and they're
1: going to get gayed. Thankfully, America's up and comers, the Zoomers, seem to not be afraid that the gay community is trying to convert everyone like zombies.
2: Well, that's a good, I mean, people say Brokeback Mountain paved the way for more acceptance of gay relationships. And I guess, cool. Like if that's the case, how I argued the Truman Show paved the way for reality TV to take over, if Brokeback Mountain paved the way for gay marriage, I am 100% for it. This movie came out before gay marriage was even legal, was before it was even popular on the democratic side. So I don't know. Mike, as a business owner, how do you feel about the gay agenda or gay people in general?
3: Spro, I kind of wholeheartedly disagree with your assessment of the love portion of the story. The gravitational force between these two guys was palpable. It was like the gay notebook. To me, the gayness is inconsequential to the love story portion of the movie. I think the places they lived, the lifestyles they grew up in, and the people who surrounded them was really what. them apart from any other love story. The forces working against these guys was tragic, and that, I think, was the most potent aspect of the homosexuality. The homophobia of those around them.
2: Did you see this movie before we made you?
3: How how old was I in 2006? I must have been 22, 23. You know, of course, immature, so like, the idea of watching a gay story at that point in my immature age sounded not ridiculous, but something that I wasn't interested in. Now I'm almost 40 and way more secure and myself. And it was a great love story, regardless of my own preferences. I think I'm okay watching that. And I think being okay watching that is one of the goals of the movie.
1: Spro, we talk about important films on this show. I'm not saying I'm going to give it to Brokeback, but I am saying there's a reason that it made over $178 million on a $15 million budget. It's expertly executed by Ang Lee. It's a beautiful love story, and it's filled with iconic imagery. It has a small but very stellar cast at the top of their game and an absolutely unforgettable Academy Award winning score by Gustavo Santo Alala.
2: It sounds like we're all saying that Brokeback Mountain, much better movie than Crash. Was there anything left in this year that could take over Brokeback? Because there were other nominees, and there were some movies that weren't even nominated that I would put up on some of my you know top 10 lists. All right, so
1: Brokeback is our first discussion. Our second discussion is Bennett Miller's film Capote, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, Catherine Keener, Chris Cooper, among others.
0: Have you read the article about the killings in Kansas? I think that's what I want to write about. Hello, my name is Truman Capote. Hello. I was in Maryland's apartment just last week. The four Matisses hang on her wall. Two are upside down. <laughs> the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, KBI. <laughs> But we're not looking for any inside information. I don't care if you catch whoever did this. I care. Because since I was a child, folks have thought they had me pig because of you know, the way I talk. And they're always wrong. You will be stunned by Perry Smith. Who took care of you as a child? Orphanage. It's as if Perry and I grew up in the same house. He stood up and went out the back door, Well, I went out the front. Guilty. What is the sentence? Death. I think how good my book can be, I can hardly breathe. He'll be dead by September. I'm going to help
2: find you a proper lawyer. Thank you. His brother and his sister killed themselves. Did you tell him your mama did
0: the same thing? If those boys get off, I'm coming to Brooklyn to hunt you down. They're torturing me. He says it's the non book of the decade. When we still haven't talked about that night. What's the name of your book? I can't finish till I know what happens. The world will see you as a monster. I don't want that. I've decided on a title for my book, In Cold Blood. Yeah,
1: good. Now, Spro, I may not be a published author or an optioned screenwriter, like somebody I know. But nonetheless, I consider myself a man of letters, and I still found the story in Capote really only occasionally engaging. I'd call it an above-average drama.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting take on one of the best true crime books ever written. Which I've never read, to be fair. But the film depicts... What? Yeah, no, I haven't read it. Correct that. I haven't finished your books, bro. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's just you telling me that I'm a horrible writer. But it's not that you should definitely don't read, dude.
1: I don't read.
2: Mm -hmm. Mike, have you read my book? (laughs) Uh, I bought it. I bought it to support you. Thank you,
1: sir. For those of you that have never seen this film or don't know what we're talking about, the movie Capote depicts the research, writing, and publication of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which was I mean, that's the granddaddy of all of the true crime nonfiction that we consume, whether it be in book form or on one of the many streaming services, right? He was the first to take a true crime story and make a narrative of it. And in that endeavor, he had his childhood friend Miss Harper Lee. Harper Lee wrote To Kill a Mockingbird and, according to lore, based the character Dill on Truman Capote. In the film, Catherine Keener portrays Lee and she accompanies Capote to Holcomb, Kansas, where she acts as his assistant, his editor, his liaison, his cultural attache, and a moral compass, quite frankly. Their relationship is the best part of this movie.
2: But do you think that she's good casting? as Harper Lee oh yeah I always enjoy seeing Catherine Keener on my screen she's like Mary Steenburgen to me a comfort but yeah no I liked Catherine Keener in this I just kind of feel like she underplayed the role, but you
1: know, maybe she was just trying to get out of Hoffman's way. This was Hoffman's movie and I'll talk about that in a second, but I don't know, man, whenever Hollywood gives us like a historical epic or a period piece or a biopic or whatever it is, I strain to ascertain the relevance that the story could potentially bring to bear on modernity. So in other words, why are you going to tell this historical tale now? What is the applicability or the insight that it can provide today's audiences? And in the case of Capote, I was at a loss. I was like, okay, so you have the eccentric author who's kind of depicted here as a bit of an opportunist who's going to do or say whatever he needs to in pursuit of the story so that he can get close to the subject's. But then also Roger Ebert's review of the film let me know that this era of Capote's life left him emotionally devastated and hastened his death. Okay, so maybe Capote's taking advantage, but at the exact same time, maybe he's also feeling large amounts of guilt. Capote's a good movie, not a great one, and not a best picture.
2: Yeah, I mean, if Philip Seymour Hoffman wasn't so good as Truman, there'd be no reason to talk about Capote as a film on this episode. I totally agree with that. I'm surprised this movie was even conceived before knowing how good PSH would be in it. To me, this is almost like finding out he does a good Truman impersonation and then shaping a film around him. There's trivia behind this that I really like too, but here's the thing I don't like about Capote. It's all about his writing of In Cold Blood, but you just have to read the book, and then you read the trivia of his relationship since five years of age with harper lee where lee was the tomboy and capote dressed and acted the way he did harper lee would protect capote from bullies she demanded respect and capote and hers seemed to cheer each other on with the writing where i feel the capote film i feel this story while pieces parts are there everything just kind of gets lost Because they know in Cold Blood and the writing of it is what's going to draw the audience in. And if we were going to get this cast together, I wish we told more of the story of Capote and Harper Lee. Totally,
1: dude. And maybe it's because I'm just saturated by true crime stories these days. Obviously the murders are still intriguing to me, but these two American authors growing up on the same block and maintaining a lifelong friendship so much more compelling.
3: Neither of you guys mentioned, you know, some of the scenes about high society in New York which I always find interesting and I think it kind of developed his character a little bit in that aspect. But I think generally speaking, you know, I kind of agree with, with Spro in that I think Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance was the only thing that kept me interested and in engaging with this one. I also think I'll say, I remember the least about this one out of the insane amount of, uh, homework assignments you guys threw on my lap for this, <laughs> dude, for this you
1: podcast. Are <laughs> giant bitch, dude, giant bitch. <laughs> Bennett Miller is a really good director. You're a really good director. Thank you. Oh, I hope to celebrate. You're welcome. <laughs> My favorite movie of his is Moneyball, but I think Capote is probably his best shot film.
2: This one was easy to forget as far as what Mike said, and I think he's right. This one didn't beat back.
1: So that takes us to Steven Spielberg's film Munich.
0: Good afternoon, I'm speaking to you live just outside the Olympic Village in Munich, West Germany. At this moment, eight or nine athletes of the Israeli team are being held prisoner. These guerrillas are a group called Black September. The commandos have automatic weapons on the hostages. A deal had been made. But now the Israelis have disappeared. Massive security
4: force. They're all gone.
0: Every civilization finds it necessary to negotiate compromises with its own values. We want to ask you, will you undertake a mission? You will have to leave the country and your family. I can't live with refusing this. We have 11 Palestinian names. Each had a hand in planning Munich.
4: You're going to kill them, one by one. We deposit money into a box that doesn't exist. 200,000 for what name. Am I alone? You'll have four others. They know useful things like documents, cars, clean up. He gets in the bed, his weight
0: arms the device. I give the signal by switching off the light. It's strange think of oneself as an assassin. Think of yourself as something else, then. What's wrong? It should have exploded by now. We found three more names for you. You know how many laws we've broken? He takes up the phone. We hit the remote. Hello? Hello? We're supposed to be righteous. And lose that, that's, that's my soul. It's your papa, don't forget my voice. You think you can outrun your fears, your doubts?
1: During the 1972 Summer Olympics, the Palestinian terrorist group Black September took hostage and murdered 11 Israeli athletes in Munich. This act of terrorism came to be known as the Munich Massacre. Spielberg's film is about the alleged Israeli response, Operation Wrath of God which was a covert mission sponsored by Mossad, again, allegedly, to hunt down and eliminate the 11 terrorists responsible. I had a lot of high hopes for this movie. And during the winter of 05, I hyped it up a lot and dragged a bunch of my friends to see it. Mike, were you there for that? Nope. (laughs) Nope. I still get shit from our college friends for that movie, but I'm still convinced that this movie could have been really spectacular, especially considering how topical a tale it was in the wake of 9-11. And while some of the moments are impactful, the entire film just doesn't hang together very well. Spielberg tried his best to make a coherent narrative out of such an enormous story, but he had to omit or truncate so many scenes that it kept me from connecting with the characters and with their story. And I I hate what I'm about to say, but I mean it. These events would have been better served by like an eight episode limited series. Like if you could have done this over the course of eight hours... And I only hate to say it because I hate television.
3: I absolutely fucking hate it when world event type movies try to cram in too much content into its rhythm. It makes it impossible to follow or comprehend. This movie was strange. For the first 30 minutes it did just that. I almost turned it off but then it became Israeli Ocean's Eleven and Lee, while I think I agree with the idea that it could have been a series, I appreciated that the movie stopped trying to cram every artifact into the movie once the killing started. It made the complex story easier to follow and settled into a chapter like rhythm.
1: I don't really hate television, but if you take Munich and then you make an eight and a half or nine hour limited series, you actually have a whole lot more to play with. It's easier to do, I know that sounds stupid when you think of the shooting time and everything, but it's easier in terms of telling the story to do it in that eight to nine hour span. To cram it into three hours, that's a real challenge.
3: One thing I appreciated, though, is once it got past the first 30 minutes, they trusted us to kind of make assumptions about what happened between the killings. So what were there, like 11 or 12 killings? And every one of those stories kind of stood on their own, which I think is your point, those individual killings could stand alone as an individual episode. But then, you know, about the chaos at the beginning, they're intending to give us the feeling that the general public had in the moment of that hostage situation, but it all just kind of falls flat to me. And if you can't tell me a story that's comprehensible and straightforward, then just get the hell out of here.
2: I've already made some anti-Spielbergian thoughts known on this show, and this one just kind of goes on there. So the fact that our guest, Mike, Is saying get the hell out of here To Uh, Steven Spielberg himself I I forgive Spielberg on this one I mean, who knows
1: how many Hollywood productions are rushed This one was among them Reputedly So, I mean, who (laughs) knows how good it could have been Without studios behind Everybody's back being like Let's go, let's fucking go, let's fucking go and it's Spielberg. You think somebody's like whipping Spielberg? No, I think it was the release date was set. And I think Spielberg is such a professional that instead of pissing and moaning, he said, I'll make that date.
2: This, this movie is not great. To me, Munich is part of Spielberg's portfolio where it was a story that he wanted to tell, not necessarily one that the audience wanted to see. You start watching, you're like, I remember being psyched for the trailers. The trailers made this seem like it was going to. be an action thriller. And then you get there and it's just kind of glued together. Here's what
1: I'll leave you with, and this is my final thought on it. This is the man that made Schindler's List. So what he does post 9-11 with this movie is he points the finger right back at Israel, at Mossad, and at Golda Meir and says, your reaction was wrong. Violence was wrong. And Mossad and Israel by and large have not not cop to it. They have not said, yes, we were responsible for that. Yes, we were behind that. Everybody knows. So for him to take that on, Spielberg went out on a limb. And he took a lot of shit for making this movie.
0: Let me see this. It's a loyalty offer to America.
1: The final nominated film for Best Picture is Good Night and Good Luck. Are you
0: now or have Morell, you been? It was a joke at first. Moreau signed it. Moreau signed yeah. it? If you don't sign this, are you and I at Target? If I don't sign it, they'll fire me.
5: 10 seconds, ready on camera good evening.
0: Any man who protects communists is not fit to wear that uniform. You can't convict people by rumor and hearsay and in your head. Are my children going to be asked who denounce me? Are they going to be judged on what their father was labeled? I see a chain reaction that has no end. The charges were in a sealed envelope. Nobody saw them. Wouldn't you guess that the people who have seen the contents of that envelope might have a better idea of what makes someone a danger to his country? Who do you think think it should should just be you that decides? Who are the people? Are they elected? Are they appointed? Is it you? I've searched my conscience and I can't find any justification for this. Our next show is gonna be about Senator McCarthy. We're gonna go right at him. We will not walk in fear one of another. This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent. Mr. Edward R. Murrow has made repeated attacks upon me and those fighting communists. Somebody's going to go down. They're gonna get audited this year. Not me, you.
5: McCarthy wants April
0: 6th. I will not be deterred. He's going to come after me. You understand the position you're putting us in? walk very carefully through these next few moments. Why don't you just fire me, Bill? Go after Joe Kennedy. We'll pay for it. Tomorrow is the symbol, the leader, and the cleverest of the jackal pack engaged in propaganda for communist causes. Okay, fellas, here we go. Might as well go down swinging. We're gonna go with the story, because the terror is right here in this room. Ten seconds. Five, Cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. Good night and good luck.
1: This is directed by George Clooney, whose directorial offerings have mostly underwhelmed. But I think Good Night and Good Luck, which was his second time in the director's chair, is far and away his best. It tells of Edward Morrow trying to use television for good to convince the American public that Joseph McCarthy was, in fact, a poisonous demagogue and not a patriot. And Clooney gave David Straight Heron the lead role and top billing, which is fucking cool. Why is that fucking cool? Because I suspect most people don't know who David Straight Heron is. Conjures up no image whatsoever. And that's because he's one of those anonymous workhorse actors who has appeared in so many movies that we love, but only a few of us have ever learned his name. That being said, Straight Heron holds a place of high regard with fellow actors and Hollywood would filmmakers Most recently, he was in Nomadland and Nightmare Alley. You probably saw him in LA Confidential or We Are Marshall or even the Bourne films to name a few. But I remember the first time seeing him was in A League of Their Own playing Ira Lowenstein. And I love it when a career supporting actor gets shuffled to the foreground of a film. I really wish that happened more often. So anyway, Good Night and Good Luck still resonates with me 20 years later. And not because I tend a little more politically left, and not because Joseph McCarthy was an opportunistic piece of drunken shit, but because now more than ever, American political discourse is hobbled by this virulent rage, which the media delights in perpetuating. The American divide has become this almost unbridgeable gap. I really hope there's still journalists out there like Edward Murrow, who go towards their job with an aim to improve life in America. Unfortunately, Murrow's approach doesn't stir hearts, it doesn't engage minds, quite like the bombastic rhetoric and finger-pointing fear-mongering that we're so used to fucking hearing. That's my first reason, but my second, third, fourth, and fifth reasons are Robert Downey Jr., Frank Langella, Diane Reeves, and a modest runtime
3: of 93 minutes. Thank you, George Clooney. Like Capote, there's really not that much that sticks out in my mind about this movie. I remember less about the movie and more of what I felt at the end and what I felt was wanting more. The movie had us immersed in these characters, and the runtime was so short, it ended just as I was getting committed to them. I can normally appreciate a short runtime, so I guess I'm a little conflicted about it.
2: This is really, in my opinion, Clooney's only good film. I would probably put this, as far as like the films that we're talking about, second on the list. If you look back in this country's history, it always seems like we're hunting some type of witch. We need to find the witches that are making our lives miserable and it's like, God damn, we're not learning anything. <laughs> We're still being controlled by these pompous assholes that are like, these people are the enemy. And we're like, yes, we found an enemy. Let's burn them at the stake. So to the point that I was
1: making earlier about Capote, it's obvious why George Clooney was telling that story in 2005. I mean, it was in an era where Muslim Americans, just anybody that appeared like they could be Middle Eastern, were being violated. They were the witches. They were the communists. Exactly. But more to the point of the film, it was at a time when we watch the news go from being news to being yelling and anger finger pointing
2: and then more anger and then pants pooping there was (laughs) there's no Walter Cronkite's anymore there's nobody that just gets on TV and reads the news and then lets you develop your own opinion one way or the other
1: to be fair though Cronkite came out against the Vietnam War publicly on the air he said this is an unwinnable war so I mean um, that's right <laughs> I'm not saying that's not right but I mean what, that's that's a fact and that's news right I'm not, <laughs> like, I'm not oh. <laughs> yeah but it was taken the other way it was taken as a leftist message. You can't have it both ways. He tried to have it both ways. All right. I don't want to have this conversation. I hate politics. Let's not talk about this. Okay. Still not better than Brokeback. So we've covered the other nominations. Let's get into some of the films that came out in 2005 that were never nominated. Let's start with Ryan Johnson's debut feature film, Brick. You ever see a trailer that just rips your scalp off of the top of your head? And while it's happening, you're believing with every fiber of your being that when you get to see that movie, it's going to finish the job. It's going to scoop your fucking brain out of your head. It's going to slather it in black paint and it's going to throw it into like a cactus patch. Ryan Johnson's brick got me two thirds of the way
2: there. That's funny. Uh, True story time. I wrote my first Hollywood screenplay in a weekend and a friend gave it to a friend and that friend became this big Hollywood producer. And this friend and I this Hollywood producer and I met in a recommissioned warehouse in the Glenville neighborhood of Cleveland, where he brought a 7-Eleven big gulp of soda and a bottle of Jim Bean. And we sat to talk about my script, but the whole conversation devolved into the appreciation of the movie Brick, and more so, its trailer. And even more specifically, the part in the trailer that doesn't happen in the movie, but it's where the birds all fly off of the football field, and then get into real big slow motion. So, yeah, I mean, even the fact that I remember that it's kind of crazy you bringing it up right now what's so special about the trailer oh, oh my gosh you should watch it let's watch it right now <laughs> brendan emily
0: i really screwed up screwed up how the brick what
4: I, I didn't know it was bad but the pins on it now you gotta help me
0: slow down now this isn't good
5: no emily said words i didn't know tell me if they catch brick no tug Tug might be a drink, like milk and vodka. Pin? You know the kingpin. Dope, bro. right? big time. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I
4: just want to know she's okay. So what's first? I'm gonna start shaking things up.
0: So you didn't know this boy? No, sir. Never seen him and he just hit you. He asked for my lunch money first. Good thing I brown bagged it.
4: You're coming into a certain situation. It's
5: twisted. I'm looking for Emily.
4: He left her. Yeah, I did. You better be sure you want to know what you want to know.
5: Complicated. Everyone's got their thing.
4: In the upper crust of Shady D,
1: they've got symbols, so they can tell each other that we're getting around.
4: Coffee
1: and pie. Coffee
0: and pie? Oh, my.
4: Keep up with me now.
0: You got a cigarette? I don't smoke. I've seen you smoke. I don't smoke cigarettes.
2: I thought we had orange juice. I'm sorry.
0: Water's fine, ma'am. Thanks.
2: Oh, wait a minute. We have apple juice. It's country style.
0: If I get to the bottom, whatever this is. What do you want, Justin?
5: It's too hot. You got a discipline issue with me? Write me up or suspend
4: me. I see that you're trying to help her. And I don't know anybody who would do that for me.
2: You are dangerous. I set out to know, put her on the spot. And put her in front of the gun. There's not much chance of
0: coming out clean.
1: Haven't you ever seen a trailer where you're like, this is the most important movie in the world and I have to see this? Nope. Oh, okay. I like that feeling.
3: I understand that, but you both have seen the movie and you guys keep talking about the trailer. You've seen what's in the trailer. That's,
1: that's a fair response. Let me phrase this a different way to you. How many times have you seen commercials or trailers for movies where you get maybe eight seconds in and you're like, I know exactly what this movie is? Tons of times. Sometimes there are filmmakers that insert themselves into the marketing of their film and create a trailer that stands out or that is completely out of the norm for trailers. Spro and I will go immediately to the social network trailer. Fucking choir singing
2: Radiohead's Creep. What about Face Off? When John Travolta runs his fingers through his hair and then becomes Nicolas Cage. That was a fucking good trailer.
3: You guys are kind of talking about like the unboxing of a movie. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the same feeling that people get when they open up an iPhone or an Apple product.
1: So, this trailer played in front of the movie The Ice Harvest, and after I watched The Ice Harvest, I immediately jumped on the Netflix website and requested a Brick DVD. Weren't those days fun, getting movies in the mail? Anyway, in brief, Brick is Ryan Johnson's 1940s gumshoe story that he resettled into the early 2000s. It's about a quick-witted high school student who sets about solving the murder of his ex-girlfriend, and and doing so is plunged into this criminal underworld run by teenagers. And I'm aware that I'm making it kind of sound like Bugsy Malone. I promise you, it is the epitome of super cool punk filmmaking, right up to the end credits with Velvet Underground Sister Ray.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mentioned it at the top of the show. There's some movies that were made this year that are in my top 10, and Brick is one of them. Brick for me is like memento. It's such a good effort by a young director that people are unfairly, in my mind, in my estimate, given the director higher and higher budgets. When And they haven't proven they're as good as the first couple of films. Ryan Johnson, to me, is like Christopher Nolan. I want the purse strings snatched from him. I want him to lock himself in a cabin and come up with another million dollar budget script. You know, this dialogue sings. This dialogue is snappy. It's clever. The structure of this story and how it unfolds is super clever. I think it's better than Knives Out, which is his latest undertaking. I really like Brick, and I would easily remove one of the films that we were less invested in with the nominations and move it up.
3: Yeah, man. The scene at the Penn's house where his mother serves frosted flakes and apple juice absolutely cracked me up. On one hand, she was the sole character in the movie who wasn't in on the joke, however serious she was in reciting the menu. But on the other hand, she was super serious in reciting the menu of Frosted Flakes and Apple Jacks, which was just fucking hilarious. This whole movie made me laugh out loud. I thought it could have been a great play.
0: I could be a good replay. I think
1: you're on to something. I also think that Ryan Johnson's brother, Nathan Johnson, who just got welcomed into the academy as one of the voters, is a wonderful composer. And I think the music that he makes for his brother's movies, like the music from Brick, it sounds like spoons.
0: Plum plum plum
1: Uh, Sproul put it in there.
3: Anyway, what a great movie. What a great directorial debut. Something I'm interested in your thoughts on is the point behind his shoes seemed to be relevant to the whole story. They were tattered. He ran a lot. The sound every time he was running was accentuated. And the camera just panned onto his tattered shoes the whole time, which reminded me of What's-His-Face Kill Bill guy. Tarantino? Yeah, it reminded me of Tarantino. To a certain degree, but I just thought that was kind of an interesting angle that repeated throughout the movie. I
2: think with the the elevated language and dialogue and the adult positions they're putting in, he was looking for all those like kind of nuances to remind the audience that these were actually children. And one uh... of the ways to do it was like the tattered sneakers the fact that he would be more inclined really to ride a bicycle than be driving in a car like any way that they could subtly they put it in
1: and to support your point when he's meeting with the principal of his school played by Richard Roundtree they have that conversation about lunch and why he wasn't in the cafeteria and he goes I brown bagged it (laughs) and it's simultaneously funny but at the same time like when the principal goes oh okay I know what you mean you're like fuck
2: yeah dude This is
1: awesome.
3: (laughs) So, Mike, did you see this
2: movie before?
3: Yes, but it's funny. I realized that fact like 15 minutes into the movie. It kind of felt like a distant memory. And then my memory must have just failed me because I didn't know anything about the story. I didn't know what to expect. It was like rewatching it for the first time. And you liked it? Oh, yeah. I absolutely enjoyed it.
1: All right, the next film on our list is Everything is Illuminated, directed by Liev Schreiber. And out of all of the unnominated, nominated Everything is Illuminated is my favorite. And I don't know what to say about it, I really don't. It's odd and it's charming. It feels epic despite how small of a movie it also is. It's heartwarming, it's wonderful. It's adapted and directed by Lee Schreiber and it remains the only feature film that he's ever directed. Kind of like Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut, The Lost Daughter, everything is illuminated is this impressive effort from someone where you're like, really, you're gonna direct movies? And hey, Spro, get ready to be shocked. I actually read this novel. This film is based on a novel, and I read it many years ago. <laughs> I hope he directs The Dead Life so you'll read my book. Nice. <gasps> the book is brilliant, but Schreiber's film kind of trims one of the weird and sort of unnecessary B-stories about the author Jonathan Seferin IV's ancestors. So the movies, the cast is brilliant, particularly Eugene Hutz, who plays Alex Hutz is probably best known for being the frontman of Gogol Bordello, this, like, gypsy punk band who actually got to see live on a farm as the sun was setting in the middle of a thunderstorm. It was fucking rad. But he is a natural-born Alex, and the relationship that he builds both on-screen and I'm sure off-screen with Elijah Wood, who plays the author of the novel, Jonathan, or as Alex refers to him as Jonathan, it's wonderful. And then when he interacts with the actor playing his grandfather, the easily angered Boris Leskin, tremendous. And let's not forget Mickey, who plays Sammy Davis Jr. Jr., who deserves a spot in the annals of Animal Actors as probably top three. Anyway, the film is a wonderful journey through Ukraine and through our past and reminds us that what has come before us is always alongside us.
3: Yeah, Guys, I mean, I love that Wes Anderson chose to cast Michael Sarah with Borat in this movie. I mean, the chemistry and the dialogue was second to none.
1: Ah, uh, you're such a fucker. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, man, I realize that neither of these people were involved in this movie, but fucking hell. I recognize some Google Bordello songs, but you're blowing my mind about him being Alex that's fucking crazy. This movie had the quirk of, and I'm going to show my amateurism here, it reminded me of a Wes Anderson film. The little, you know... That's the, not
2: amateur, that's spot on.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the little nuances, idiosyncrasies of Frodo's character, you know, the collections, and then the connection to that lady, and all of the different dialogues. I mean, it was just, it was fascinating to get a glimpse into this guy's imagination that directed the film, and I don't know about the book, but I assume that it's somewhat similar to the book, but I'm sure that the director and the movie kind of added its own kind of thumbprint to everything. And, you know, if you like Wes Anderson, and I do... Although his last uh, his last movie, whatever the name was, we ended it midway through French Dispatch. Yeah, because fuck the French Dispatch. <sighs> then you'll like this, and we did. I definitely saw the Wes Anderson. I definitely saw the Borat.
2: Oh, this movie was it, this movie hard. was hard for me. It was funny because Lee, you texted me and you're like Hancock is a go at six, and I was like okay. So that's two hours away. I have 80 minutes left of this film. That's probably enough time to finish it. I would like watch 10 minutes of it and then I would get up and I would walk around and I do so I'm like, fuck, I got to watch because this movie also is very, there's parts where there's no talking. I want to say it's almost like 50% in a foreign light, like it's almost a subtitled movie. But there's like some parts of it even I mean, obviously, I wasn't on board for the film. So like by the end of it, like I was just getting frustrated. And then Elijah, Frodo, Jonathan takes out the dirt from his hand. And then I just started counting the cuts Because it was like Elijah looking at the dirt on his hand and then the gravestone and then the dirt and then his face looking at it and then the gravestone and then the dirt. And I was like, Jesus, is he going to throw it? Is he going to throw it? Just throw it. Just throw the dirt. I'm not going to blame you for not liking this movie, Spro, but I think
1: you're suffering from having watched too many movies too frequently for this show. I think you're missing out on something that's wonderful.
2: Well, here's the thing. like You and I, I think, part ways on our movie opinions when the movie is more poetic like Thin Red Line, like this movie. I'm not necessarily here for film to be poetry. I want I think it to this, be more spectacle. I think this movie is hilarious. You didn't <laughs>
1: laugh at all during this movie? Did I laugh? That's a no. How is that possible? You must not have been paying attention, bro.
2: No, I was paying attention. Like the whole, were Ukrainians anti-Semitic? And now we're like in a war because Putin says that Ukrainians are anti-Semitic. Like it was all crazy to me. I was like equating everything that's happening now. Watching the movie, I was like, I want to read this book. I just, I don't care about the movie. Some of the longer parts of the movie is when they're writing things down on paper. And I was like, okay, I get it. It's a book. I'm going to go read the book. Can I jump in here? It's yeah.
1: 104 minutes.
2: Yeah, and it
3: took me like a day to watch. Uh... He's always pissed off when I shit on his <laughs> You know, one thing, now that you guys are talking about it, I'm remembering some details. And one thing that I left a little frustrated about is the story of the grandpa. So midway through the movie, it's revealed that the grandfather was involved in the situation in Ukraine, obviously Jewish, obviously arrested by the Nazis. What's frustrating to me is the development of that story didn't thread back to the beginning of the movie where he was just this like bumbling, grandpa that is giving tours and showed zero interest in elijah wood's journey all of a sudden he's part of the story and that just kind of frustrated me
2: this is I'm not my- saying i'm right i'm just saying like i just poetic movies like wes anderson films i'm not ever really on board with wes anderson i want to rewatch
1: this movie more than any wes anderson movie more than Royal Tenenbaums, more than my favorite Darjeeling Limited,
2: but agree to disagree, I suppose. My favorite Wes Anderson is Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I think that's because I can disengage my mind. Like, I really like Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox and I'm not looking for like, I'll tell you where my suspension of disbelief kind of disengages with this movie is Elijah Wood's character is afraid of dogs, right? And they bring a dog along and he's like, I'm not getting in the car with that dog. I have a phobia of dogs. And then the next scene is probably a comedic Scene to chuckle at, but it's Elijah Wood in the backseat with a dog that he's terrified of, and the dog barks and he just kind of flinches a little bit. And I'm in my mind as a viewer, I'm like, if he's got a phobia, there's no way he's sitting in the backseat with that dog, like, he'd be fucking petrified to even get it. So it's like, that's how my mind works. And so these poetic films, I don't process correctly, I guess. So sorry about me. That makes you <laughs> broken and wrong. <laughs>
3: Your grandfather wanted you to have this photograph
5: for your collection. Who is Augustine?
0: Uh, Grandma? Jonathan is traveling halfway around the world.
5: You my translator?
0: Forgive my speaking of English, Jonathan. As I'm not so premium with him. To search for the woman who saved his grandfather in World War II. It's my grandfather, Saffron. And this is Augustina.
4: This is our driver. Please, do not be distressed. This is only driver seeing eye, bitch. Wait, he's blind? Only he thinks this. Father informs me you are writing a book about this trip. I'm I'm not a writer, more of a collector. And what do you collect? Things, family things.
0: In a world far from ordinary... It's nice. Make sure
4: to secure the door when I'm gone. There are many dangerous people who want to take things from Americans and also kidnap them.
0: Good night in a place far from home. I'm a vegetarian. You're a what? I don't eat meat. Pork? No. Chickens? No. But what about the sausage? No meat. What is wrong with you? One man's quest for the truth... Why do you do this? Sometimes I'm afraid I'll forget. ...is about to unlock a secret... This is not so unusual. What? Not knowing. ...that will change all of their lives... Everything is illuminated.
1: The next film, which we can zip right through this one because I have no misgivings that this is going to be our best picture of 2005, but I could not pass up the opportunity to talk about what I think is Robert Rodriguez's best film, Sin City. It's a bit bloated, but I can't blame him. He poured his fucking heart and soul into this movie. So naturally, he was going to cram in as much as he possibly could. Of all the comic book movies ever made, and I say ever made up until 2005 when Sin City came out, so Superman to Spider Man, none of them ever looked like Sin City. Rodriguez used green screens and blue screens and whatever colored screens to create a flipbook of Frank Miller's work starring Hollywood actors. Like Miller's comics, it did not lose that mean-spirited and ultra-violent and unapologetically bleak view. Unfortunately, it's hard to re-watch. I saw it in the theater three times, but once I got it on DVD, the returns kind of started to diminish. I started being like, oh, it's a little bit machismo. It's a little bit absurd. I rewatched it for this episode and it's still a lot of fun. It just doesn't inspire the awe that it
3: inspired in the theater. I really expected and wanted to hate this movie. In fact, as part of the absolute mountain of homework you guys asked me to complete to participate in this Zoom call, I saved this one for last because I was preparing myself to skip it just in case. I've read four comic books in my life and I was a teenager. I haven't watched a comic book movie, a Marvel movie, Avengers. I haven't watched a comic book movie since the Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. And I just don't understand the draw. But all I got to say is I like this movie a lot.
2: Yay! <laughs> I think the biggest surprise of this and something that we'll probably talk about in the future is that you look at this film and you talk about how groundbreaking the effects were, how Robert Rodriguez labored over getting it as precise as he did. This wasn't nominated for Academy Award, not one. It didn't show up in any category, including visual effects for the Academy Awards. There's probably a reason behind that that I don't know that I can dig up, but we might have to come back to it and just say like, you're right, Sin City paved the way for a lot of different movies moving forward. And even some today, like Sin City deserved a visual effects award.
1: It's not that he was using cutting edge technology. It was just that he was using what was available to everyone in a different way. Yeah, And in doing so, created this thing where it was like, Jesus, this looks like nothing
2: I have ever seen before in my life. This was definitely the better performance of a role of 2005 of Elijah Wood wearing glasses, is what I'll say. Jesus. Zing. The final movie that we need to talk about that was
1: not nominated is Rob Marshall's Memoirs of a Geisha, based on the novel of the same name. Spro, this was... Just go. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, this is what I was talking about. I think this is the divide between the movies that we watch. Your poetry, your spoken poetry, monologues, talking about love and war and everything like that. And I am visual based. I love anything that shows me something from a different culture that I've never seen before. But here's the, like, the weird thing about Memoirs of a Geisha. I put this on my Netflix queue about a month ago to watch later. And as I'm watching it, I was like, I'm so about this this movie. I am mesmerized by the pictures I'm seeing. I'm in love with the culture I'm learning about and everything. And then I look it up and I was like, my gosh, this is the season opener of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. And it's not on any list that we have to view it. And really, to point of fact, 50 points separates the critic score and the audience score on this one on Rotten Tomatoes. 85% audience score, 35% critic score. Why do you think the critics came down so hard and such a beautiful film. I think it's beautiful to look at, but I think it's a very forgettable and derivative story. I don't think so. To me, like that, you just described Munich to me, but I do have a special place in my heart for Asian culture. I'm on the phone with Taiwan every day for my business. I have a pen pal in Japan. I've dated Korean and Chinese women. Our listeners probably hear me come down hard on American life a lot, and that's a fair critique. I do. There's so much I think we can learn from other cultures, and more specifically, the attention to detail of, say, the Japanese or the Germans. This country is so mass produced product that people scoff at hand-painted prices. So Memoirs of geisha to me was like a breath of fresh lavender air. To see how they get ready, to see the details and the traditions and the dance, you have to do this a certain way. All that stuff. It's even when we're talking about Spencers and the Royals and taking a peek into their life of no, you only eat with the fork, with the prongs down, and you never scoop soup to you, you scoop it away from you. All those little intricacies mesmerize me. My biggest critique of Memoirs of Geisha would be that they spoke English. Now that we live in a world where films in other countries can speak the country's language and will subtitle it, I wish I could hear the poetry in the Japanese language as I watch this beautiful production design on screen. The biggest critical critique of this movie is the fact that the three Japanese ladies were played by Chinese. And for people that know, there's a whole lot of between those countries. But you asked me, Brokeback had the good nature shots, you know, of the mountains and everything, the good cinematography, but Memoirs
3: was one of the best production designed movies that I've seen in the past 20 years. To me, this movie took me to a completely different world in a totally different era. I have no idea how historically accurate the intricate detail was, but it allowed me to escape for a minute. And I think that's what I liked about it. Interesting, Spro, to hear you talk about how you're not the biggest fan of poetry movies, but then to hear you talk about wanting to hear the poetry in the Japanese language. I This was in fact, now that I'm thinking about it Crash, Brick, and Memoirs of A Geisha were the three movies that I had seen 17 years ago when they were new and I liked it then I liked it now. I thought it was beautiful I thought the story was compelling it was engaging and I just thought it was an all, a well-rounded movie and definitely in my opinion well above a lot of the nominees. Did you watch this one with your wife?
2: No. Uh, I wonder what a dancer would think of all like the theater. Oh, uh, it's a good it.
3: question. I didn't ask her. It was one of the first ones I watched and she was out of town, so I kind of forgot to ask her about it. But I wonder if she's seen it.
2: Lee, do you want to shit on this movie? Yeah. Okay,
1: go ahead. No, I don't want to shit on it. I just think <laughs> it's um It's Pretty Woman meets Cinderella set in Japan. I mean, if you're going to tell the story of and novel aside, but if you're going to tell the story in film of what it is to be a geisha, I mean, at what point are the men and the society held culpable? I just think it was very predictable. I don't know how close it hues to the novel. Never read it. But doesn't it creep you out that homeboy that she ends up with in the end meets her on the street and she falls in love with him, like, Daddy, <laughs> doesn't that kind of creep you out a little, a little bit?
2: I don't know, because it's a, you know, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's a different culture. It's a oh, different time. right, right. And, you know, nothing happens when they're, I, I don't think he falls in love with her. That would be the creepy bit. Okay. She meets him for like two minutes when she's a child, and then he re-meets her when she's an adult woman. And he's like, so... oh, Mike, what do you feel about pedophilia? <laughs>
5: <laughs> All right.
1: So before we get to our picks for Best Picture, here are a few other films that came out in 2005 that we believe are deserving of an honorable mention. Broken Flowers by Jim Jarmusch. The Ice Harvest, directed by Harold Ramis. Lords of Dogtown, directed by Katherine Hardwick. The horror film Dark Water starring jennifer connelly which scares the shit out of me and still <laughs> does because of the girl that died in the fucking water tank on the top of that hotel in la and then people were like why is the water all black that i'm drinking and that i'm showering with and then they went up and found her dead butt yeah dude that shit fucks me up the movies about that story no interestingly enough it came out before that happened
3: oh uh...
1: And for a long time, people thought that it was foul play, but I think it's kind of been just understood that she was off her meds. She was schizophrenic. Whatever. This is dark. Me and You and Everyone We Know, directed by Miranda July. Kingdom of Heaven, directed by Ridley Scott. The Proposition, directed by John Hillcoat. The Three Burials of Melchiata Estrada, directed by Tommy Lee Jones. And of course, The Descent.
2: Oh my gosh, The Descent! Quick shout out to one of my top five horror movies of all time. In fact, when meeting, talking to someone who doesn't like horror movies, who are open to my suggestions, I always say the top three is The Descent, The Conjuring, and Hereditary. The Descent, though, once it gets into horror, I will say it loses a little bit, but the absolute visceral reaction one feels when the girls are squeezing themselves through the caves and the tunnels, man, this movie unsettles me like Requiem for a Dream so go see it, especially before Dark Water. So before you, we get into like who we're gonna select and everything like that, just because Mike is one new guest. Thank you again for joining us on this. But two, the <laughs> representation of our audience. <laughs> what would you say out of the mountain of homework that you did? Did you do 20 films, 10 films? I think I did 10,
3: maybe. All right, what were your top three? Okay. Broke back mountain. Everything is illuminated. Brick.
2: Oh, shit. Not, okay.
3: <laughs> Spro's flummoxed. <laughs> <laughs> are none of those on your list?
2: They oh, are. Gotcha. I just uh, expect everything is illuminated, but that's fine. You All right. So
1: I'll go next, and it's Munich, Munich, and Munich. It's <laughs> Munich. Cubed. All right. My personal favorite, it really is Everything is Illuminated. This is a movie that I can watch over and over again. This is a movie that everyone that I've shared it with, save you, Spro, which, you know, maybe that makes you and I good counterparts for this. Everyone I've shared it with has loved it. But quite frankly, there are a number of movies that we have talked about today to which I'd be willing to concede. And any of the movies, any of them that we have talked about is a better best picture than Crash. So
2: let's hear from Pro. Duck, what do you say? So Everything is Illuminated is number one. What's your two and three? Because I feel like we're all going to disagree on our number ones.
1: Everything is Illuminated is number one. Brokeback Mountain is number two. And baby, I didn't think about this. I didn't know you were going to ask me this. Good night and good luck is my number three.
2: I think my top three would be... Brokeback Mountain, Memoirs of a Geisha, and Brick. Which, if we were adding up our points and ranking them, I think Lee and you both had Brokeback as number two, and I had it as number one. So that would be our winner.
5: I think that's a
1: completely deserving winner.
5: Have you been to Mexico, Jack Twist? Huh? Because I hear what they got in Mexico for boys like you. Hell yes, I'll be in Mexico. Is that a fucking problem?
0: I'm gonna tell you this one time, Jack fucking twist.
5: And I ain't fooling. What I don't know, all them things that I don't know, could get you killed if I come to know them. I ain't joking. Yeah, we'll try this one. And I'll say it just once. Go ahead. Tell you what, we could have had a good life together. Fucking real good life. Had us a place of our own. But you didn't want it in us. So what we got now is Brokeback mountain. Everything's built on that. That's all we got, boy. Fucking all. So I hope you know that if you don't never know the rest. You count the damn few times that we have been together in nearly 20 years, and you measure the short fucking leash you keep me on, and then you ask me about Mexico, and you tell me you kill me for needing something I don't hardly never get. You have no idea how bad it gets. And I'm not you. I can't. Make it on a couple of high-altitude fucks once or twice a year? You are too much for me, ass. Son of a horse, bitch. I wish I knew how to quit you. Then why don't you? Why don't you just let me be, huh?
0: Because of you, Jack, that I'm like this. I'm nothing. I'm, just, I'm nowhere. Oh. Get the fuck off me!
5: Come. Uh.
1: When I rewatched that movie, and I only have seen it twice, I watched it once 17 years ago, and then I watched it again for this episode. And it was crazy to me how, as I rewatched it, how much it stuck with me. And I hadn't thought about it. It was so subconsciously indelible. And maybe that means I'm gay. Who knows? I'm probably gay. But. It is a absolutely beautiful movie. Uh, I mean, there are so many shots in that movie that are worthy of being framed. And it all culminates with that last shot where Ennis is looking at that postcard, that picture of Brokeback Mountain. And when he closes the wardrobe door, it starts to come into view like we're going to zoom in and go there. And then it shuts It's so powerful. Ang Lee is such a great filmmaker, and that movie is perfect.
2: I don't think we said it, but I think it's really true. After 17 years, Power of the Dog still wasn't a better movie than Brokeback Mountain was back in the day, which I think is a huge credit to its staying power. So you're comparing those two movies just simply
1: because- Gay cowboys. They're they're both about gay. (laughs) So we're giving it to Brokeback Mountain for Best Picture, as it should have been.
2: It's funny. I came into the episode being like, I don't think I want to give it to Brokeback, because that's what everybody's going to expect of us. But I don't think I can argue the fact that it should have been Brokeback's year. And Brick and Memoirs of Geisha should have been
3: nominated. Agreed. In your analysis, you didn't seem to like it very much. What, Brokeback? Yeah.
2: So the cinematography, the performances, Yacking absolutely music, the, the directing, editing, yeah, everything, the pacing, the, butts, the editing, not the script. I wouldn't say the script, and that's pull probably pull surprise my winning fault.
1: Larry McMurtry, go ahead for the screenplay. Yeah, no, yes, really, he adapted that shit. One he didn't more
2: time. win a Pulitzer Prize for the screenplay of Brokeback Mountain. No, but he was a Pulitzer Prize winner. Oh, yeah, that doesn't. I mean, so. You don't think the script is good? I think the script would be the biggest mark I have off of it. And it's probably just how people told me to perceive it versus how maybe it's like another everything is illuminated situation where they're like, oh my gosh, it's a love story. And I'm like, "Mm, I don't know if it's a love story per se, but I mean, okay. I think so. But it's definitely conversation fodder, considering the fact that we all sat here and talked about our perceptions of it and everyone was kind of different.
1: Let me bear myself real quick. Yeah, yeah. What bums me out about this movie the most is that I am heterosexual and that I don't have to, it's not even a consideration that I have to think about who I love and being with that person in public. It's the same thing with fried green tomatoes, the book, especially because the movie kind of steers away from the lesbian angle. But it was a time in American history. And I mean, back then it was like under pain of death Do not admit that you are gay. Do not give it away. And that fills me with so much sadness. It's wild to me that anyone who's a living, breathing, thinking human would say, nope. Oh, that person loves that person. Nope. It's evil to me. Great. Thanks for virtue signaling. All right. Jesus Christ. Mike
2: Mike Hancock, owner of Odd Dog Coffee. Do you have any... (laughs) <laughs> well, Lee said that back to you, Lee. <laughs> Beautiful thoughts, Lee. Back to All you, right. Lee. Talk to
3: me. But fine. Hancock, hey, so- do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Guys, who's who's running this podcast? <laughs> you are. Why am I doing so badly then? Cuz you're a broke-back bitch. <laughs>
2: uh. No, here's the question. We took the Oscar away from Crash. Yes. Are giving it to Brokeback Mountain. Yes. Do you think it deserves it over Crash?
3: Absolutely over Crash. I mean, my vote was Brick, but given that we're in a constitutional democracy here, I think I'm obligated to go with the majority, and I'm supportive. I wish it were Brick, but I think it being Brokeback Mountain is a totally fair outcome.
2: I think how it would go is it'd be Brokeback Mountain, Brick based off points and then everything is illuminated number three i gotta say i am
1: shocked that brokeback mountain is winning after what we talked about for so long spro i did not think you were going to make that your number one I can't
2: believe you even switched your vote to Brick. No, because Brick is my number three. It doesn't illuminate anything for us about the world. Like it's a well-told story, but it's not going to, like I say, art should be a reflection of the society and the times that we are living in. Brick doesn't do anything at all for that. It's just a great entertaining watch. So that's said- why it's my number three. Memoirs of a Geisha, the huge hit on it is they're speaking English. And now that I'm a little bit more woke in 2022, I'm like, why are they speaking English? Everything is set in Japan like there's no reason that they should be speaking English. So Brokeback's got to be my number one with all that in mind. Well, that means that we've come to the end of episode
1: one of season three. But the season's just beginning. Every other Monday, you'll get a new episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy and we're excited for you to be a part of each and every one of those. Our social medias are going to keep you abreast of all the release dates, episode topics, and the cinema du jour. Mr. Mike Hancock, thank you so much for stepping out of your comfort zone to do this. Before we go, can you tell people how to get a bag of your delicious coffee?
3: Yeah, guys, I can't tell you... How excellent of an experience this has been. (laughs) So thank you for including me in your hobby. I'm honored to be a part of episode one in season three. So if you're in the Cleveland area, please come see us at our local park. It's the Walter Simpson Community Park. Here in University Heights, Ohio. We are currently open Fridays through Sundays. We operate out of a little mint green battery powered coffee bus. If you're anywhere else in the world, you can visit our website at odddogcoffee.com. That's O D D D O G. C-O-F-F-E-E.com. And you can search for us both on Facebook and Instagram.
2: What's your favorite flavored coffee? Because we talked about it
3: in our advertisements. I am a straight up, I have two drinks of choice, regular old black coffee or a cappuccino. Now, if I were to choose a flavor, I would probably go with the cinnamon, cacao, and cayenne, commonly called our Mexican spice.
1: That is the best coffee I've ever had. And my experience is far shallower than yours, but amazing. And the
2: one thing you're missing out on not being in Cleveland, Lee, is that the site at Walter Stinson Community Park has other flavors as well.
3: Man. That you can't
2: get on the internet.
3: Yeah, we mix it up a lot. You guys, Lee, you in particular, I think would appreciate our iced Zumi. It's an espresso-based drink. We make it like an, an iced Americano. But we make a house-made simple syrup that we add two pumps to. It's simple syrup, and it's our Mexican spice. So cinnamon, cayenne, and cacao nibs. And then we add star anise to it, add a little orange peel to it, and it's delightful. It's like a summer, old-fashioned.
2: It's just crazy how much you are like a mixologist, barista, kind of mix Mixture. i love it it's, it's and i fun. love you man
1: I, I love you guys too all right so the best picture oscar of 2006 goes to brokeback mountain and not crash Thank you very much, Mr. Mike Hancock, for coming on the show today. Lots of love. Hope that you aren't scared away in case maybe we want to have you back at some point. Yeah, no comment. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I guess all there is left to say is my name is Lee. I'm Spro. My name is Mike. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. there we go, season three
2: officially underway. When are we back again? Monday, September 12th. In fact, listeners can expect a new episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy every two weeks until the end of the year. Oh, that's nice of us. So what's our topic for next time? Well, episode two is actually part one of our new quickie series, The Streep Effect, where we're gonna scrutinize each of Meryl Streep's 21 Oscar nominations and decide if she deserved them all or if she got nominated because she's Queen Meryl. Okay, so so how can I stay connected to Spro and Lee during the 14 days of
1: emptiness between episodes.
2: My recommendation would be on Instagram at Take on the Academy. You'll find all kinds of posts, pictures, videos, and fun facts to tide you over. Stop by and give us a follow. And can I find episodes of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy just anywhere? And pretty much. Google is a wonderful place. But if you've got Spotify or Apple Podcasts already downloaded on your phone, you can always just subscribe to the show on there. That way the new episodes are all ready to go for you when you wake up on Mondays. Jeepers. Seems
1: like you guys have thought of everything. Is there anything I can do as a devoted fan of Saltota?
2: Of course there is, you silly little cinephile. Likes, follows, reviews, reposts, recommendations, all these are pretty easy for a great person like you to manage and can really help increase our visibility. Oh, and if you ever feel the need to write us a disapproving email in which you list our various mistakes or criticize Lee's opinions, send it to takeontheacademy at gmail.com. Even though your feedback probably can use some more as well, we choose to open arm you nonetheless, so remember that.
1: All right, enough crowd work for the day. And as for you, dear listener, we hope you'll go streeping with us on Monday, September 12th.
5: Chico-coo.